I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 and verse 17. We're going to cover quite a bit of ground today, so we'll move fairly quickly through this. So as you're turning there, just as we consider the the death of Jesus, we're faced with the inescapable reality that there are people who hate Jesus, who despise him. And I think it's important to understand why, uh, why it is that people hate him and, and hated him back when he walked the earth and, and even so today. And I would also just submit to you that your answer to that question will reveal a, a lot about your theology the tendency is to make those who, you know, the ones who crucified Jesus, to make them out to be people who are not at all like us. Uh, they're like other people. Uh, that's the tendency. Rarely do we see ourselves in those who hated Jesus while he walked the earth. I think that's normal. That's kind of tendency. We want to see ourselves as the good guy. So, uh, you know, this question, it, it is important. You know, were there just, as some people say, just really a few powerful people who hated his message of love, which really threatened their existence, whereas, you know, all of the average people, the little guys, were really all for him. So is it primarily, you know, an issue of power? Uh, Or were his opponents just religious people? You know, maybe just anyone who insists on truth and on any sort of doctrine while they're automatically, you know, Pharisees? Is that who the enemies of Jesus were, or, or was there a, 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 a something deeper that touches all of mankind, that makes mankind at enmity with Christ? And so, you know, from, from God's perspective, as we look at Jesus' death, the cross, uh, we can see, we, we know the purpose of Jesus' death. Um, we, we know, Isaiah 53, for example, we know that it was the will of the Father to crush the servant, to crush his son Jesus, uh, to punish him for the sins of everyone who trusts in him. Uh, This was the Father's will, and we know that the Father and the Son were in perfect, and the Spirit were in perfect unity on this. The Father, in love, sent the Son, and the Son willingly went and came and went to the cross and endured this to draw many to himself. He willingly laid down his life. And so that's the purpose of God in it, but we also know that Men, human beings, played a role in this, and we know that mankind is responsible for our sin. And so what is it, what was it, uh, that was going through their minds? Why did they do this? What was so upsetting to them that they crucified Christ? And so if you think of Luke writing this gospel to Theophilus, a Roman, this is a valid question that might be in his mind and others' minds in the first century. Uh, Why did many people... And, and namely the leaders of the Jews, reject Christ and then have him crucified? Why, why in the world would they do that if he's indeed the Savior? So you can see how this question would be important. And of course, at the, at the bottom of it, at the bottom of it is the fact that mankind is sinful and in rebellion against God and has been ever since Adam. Uh, sin is a disease common to all mankind. But this, this enmity with God, this rebellion against God, it manifests itself in different ways against Jesus. So for some, it's just cold indifference. You've experienced this, no doubt. Uh, perhaps you've shared the gospel with somebody and they just kind of shrug. You know, that is a, that is a, a, a hatred towards Christ 
um, that is this cold indifference, which is its own form of despising him. Uh, and, but for others, it, it involves a much more active and vocal disgust and disdain for Christ. And so today we're going to look at uh, five brief stories, brief snapshots from Luke 5 and 6, um, which reveal this rising opposition to Christ from official uh, leaders within Judaism, the scribes and the Pharisees. We've seen so far uh, in Nazareth there was opposition to Jesus. They wanted to kill him, but as we mentioned back there, that was really more of a mob sort of mentality reaction. And now we have much more of you know, the, the leaders of the, the Jews who are, who are entering into the picture. And Luke is putting these stories back to back and showing us why it was that they were so offended and upset and, 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 and why this enmity towards God was, was you know, finding its, its uh, release and so all of these accounts we're going to read in, in starting in 517 and finishing in 611, uh, they're all linked by this opposition to Jesus. Uh, and it's, we see it rising, and it's going to culminate in the crucifixion. And so Luke is showing us in these why there was this opposition, what it was specifically that they were so indignant about, the specific things that Jesus said and the specific things he did that drew their ire, allowing them to express their rebellion towards him, giving them this reason. What were the things he was doing and saying? That's what Luke's going to begin to show us, and it'll continue throughout, the, throughout his book as well. We'll see much more. But also, as we look at this and see why it is that people hate Jesus, we're reminded uh, that this, this also can help us understand today why it is that people continue to hate Christ, but also his followers, us. So um, if you remember John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Then he goes on to say, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And of course, they did persecute Christ. And so the obvious conclusion then is that his people likewise will suffer similarly that his people likewise will be hated and suffer persecution. So as we look at why some people hate Jesus, we'll also understand why it is that some might oppose and hate us right along with him. So uh, as we go through these five stories, we're going to look at three reasons why it is that some hate Christ. The first, uh, so the outline, the first thing is Jesus claims to be God. That's uh, verses 17 through 26. Second reason, Jesus' gospel offends their sense of decency, what's right. Uh, It's verses 27 to 32. And then the remaining verses, Jesus defines true religion while rebuking man-made traditions. All three of these things are, are, are reasons why people will react and despise Christ. So, uh, first of all, First reason, one of the reasons Jesus, people hate Jesus is that he is God. He claims to be God. So begin reading with me in chapter 5, verse 17, and we'll read to the end of 26. Luke writes, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. 
And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus, or into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So for the first time in Luke, the Pharisees uh, are explicitly named. Uh, This was a group of men who were leaders in Israel, and they were um, respectfully viewed by a lot of the people as uh, because of their apparent piety and holiness. They were very strict, um, as we'll see. Lots of additional laws, even more than what the Old Testament says. And so they were held up and esteemed by most people as apparently being very godly. And Luke says they'd come here from all over. So as word about Jesus' miracles and his teaching are spreading, they're, they're coming to see what, what's going on. And as we'll see, they're coming to trap him. And so in this first story, Jesus is teaching, uh, and some men bring this paralyzed friend on a stretcher of sorts to see him. But they can't get in because of the crowds, so they go up to the roof and they lower him through the roof. And that's how they get him into Jesus. This is not quite as destructive as it would be if they lowered him through your roof, your house. Um, but uh, still, they pulled away these tiles. They, they, it's a lot of effort they've gone through to get him to see Jesus. And Jesus can see that these men are motivated by faith. So in verse 20, we're told he sees their faith. This includes the man on the mat, the paralyzed man. He sees their faith and he pronounces the paralytic sins forgiven. So that seems maybe like a bit of a twist, maybe a surprise twist, because this doesn't appear to be the thing that they're requesting, the thing that they're really after, right? He's paralyzed, they're bringing him. This doesn't seem to be what they're after primarily. But regardless, Jesus seeing their faith, and he, he deals with the more pressing need of this man. And so I would suggest that this man does have an understanding of his sin and his need for God's forgiveness and grace. We're not told a whole lot about this man, uh, but we are told that Jesus sees faith and pronounces his sins forgiven. So I think it's safe to say that the man possessed faith, that he did believe Christ was who he said he was, that he did understand his need to have his sins forgiven. Um, but, but, uh, But notice, just, you know, we can note from this that often... As human beings, we tend to think that physical needs are are our most important. We would see this story, and as we're reading it, oh, he's a paralyzed man, he's coming to Jesus, he wants to walk, he needs to walk, that's his big problem. Um, but, But really we see, among other things, we see that his greater need is for forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus grants that to him. He begins there anyway. And this pronouncement of forgiveness 
brings the disgust of the Pharisees, and they, they consider it blasphemy, as God alone can forgive sins, they say, in verse 21. And so, what basis, on what basis is Jesus making this claim, this man? On what authority? No sacrifice here has been made. They're not in the temple. This is not a, a Levite. He's not a priest. On what basis can this man claim that he sees his faith and, and pronounces his sins forgiven? He doesn't know the man's heart. So Jesus perceives their thoughts and calls them out uh, by posing a question to them about which is easier to say. Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise Take up your mat and go home. So the point is, yes, anyone can, can utter the words, your sins are forgiven. And we don't really have a way of, of verifying that empirically. Uh, I, you know, anyone could say to anybody, anywhere, oh, your sins are forgiven. Um, and we can't really empirically prove that. But if you tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk... You know, while we can quite easily test to see if, uh, you know, you're a charlatan or if you legitimately have authority and power to make a man well and make him walk. And obviously, it's, if he doesn't get up, then you're, you know, you, you prove you can't do it. If he does get up, then you're vindicated. And so healing the man, then, is what Jesus does. This is the harder thing to say. This proves, he says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Verse 24, so this healing, this miracle, it's harder to do than to say your sins are forgiven, but this miracle proves that he does have the authority to, in fact, forgive his sins. It demonstrates the authority of his words, the authority of his teaching. So notice that miracles, they serve this function throughout the scriptures. Whether it's Elijah, whether it's even Jesus here, or the apostles, they are... They are uh, testifying to the truth of what's being proclaimed and to the legitimacy of the messenger. And so Jesus says that explicitly here. You think of the Gospel of John. There's seven miracles in the Gospel of John, and they're called signs because they point to something beyond just the miracle themselves. They're, they're pointing to Jesus and who he is and what he is claiming and what he is saying. And so this miracle demonstrates his authority. Jesus also, notice, calls himself the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is not just referring to the fact that he is human, his human side. This is a title uh, from Daniel chapter 7 that was understood to refer to the Messiah. And there, this Son of Man, the Messiah, is, is coming one day on the clouds, with the clouds, to usher in and to establish God's eternal kingdom and to reign and rule forever in righteousness. So he's claiming very clearly to be this individual, this Messiah. And then and his claim of divinity becomes crystal clear in that he, he claims to possess authority in himself to forgive sins. So uh, it, it's, it's not that he claims on the basis of another person or on the basis of something outside of himself he can uh, say that your sins are forgiven or most likely forgiven. He says... He has authority to forgive, not just pronounce that you've been forgiven, but to actually issue the forgiveness. He has that authority, he says and claims. So consider how different this is from even from, from us, from anyone else. None of us have this authority in ourselves to just say, 
you are forgiven on our own authority. As the church, even as we are commissioned to preach the gospel and to call people to repentance and faith, to preach that forgiveness of sins is available, we're preaching that it's available in Jesus' name. We're preaching that Jesus is the one who forgives. We can say to somebody who repents and is trusting in Christ and knows he's their only hope of salvation, we, we, can, we can say to them with confidence, we can say, you know, you have every reason to be confident that your sins are forgiven, not because I have the authority to just pronounce it so, but because Christ is great, because this word is trustworthy, and you can trust him. And so we're pointing to him. But he is the one who claims to actually possess that authority. That authority that the Pharisees rightly understand belongs only to God. And so Jesus is God. And his miracle here is is making that case. It's proving that. And so he heals this man, and, and many there indeed do rejoice and glorify God as a result. But there is opposition here. And it begins with this claim of his divine authority. Then in this particular case, the need for forgiveness is something that the Pharisees will trip over. We'll see in just a second. Um, but in this case, the issue primarily is the one of authority, of, of Jesus' claim to have divine authority to dis, just forgive sins. So they think he's blasphemous because they, they think he's just an ordinary man. But in fact, he is the Son of Man and he is he is God in human flesh. So, of course, this claim of divinity that Jesus is God, it remains provocative today. People will tolerate many claims of Jesus, but this one is indeed radical, and many stumble and trip over this one. So let him be a a good man, let him be a good teacher, let him have some good morals, let him be even a prophet, but do not let him be God in human flesh. And yet, that's who he is. He's the image of the invisible God. He is the eternally existing Son of who came to earth to take on human flesh, adding to himself a human nature. We've talked quite a bit so far in Luke about his humanity, the human side of Jesus. But at the same time, he never gave up his divinity. He never ceased to be God. He never ceased to be divine at at any point. And so he possesses, at all times, he possessed and continues to possess full authority as God. He has authority to forgive sins back then when this was happening and even so now. One of the things that this story demonstrates for us is that mankind's problem with God and problem with Jesus is not one of a lack of evidence. It's a moral problem. So, uh, you know, a lot of, it, it's kind of common to think, well, people just don't know enough. They just don't have enough proofs about God. That's why they don't believe in Him, or they don't have enough proofs about Jesus. That's why they don't believe in Him. And uh, certainly they might lack uh, important information, important knowledge. Um, but here we see that the problem is a moral problem. These Pharisees are face to face with the image of God, as Hebrews calls Him. He's God in human flesh. He has just performed this amazing miracle. He has performed other miracles. 
And yet they reject him. They dismiss him. In spite of all this, in spite of his power, in spite of his knowledge of Scripture, his impeccable, perfect character, they dismiss him. And we'll see as we continue to go through this text, it gets worse as they go. And they're resolved to reject him. Because mankind's problem is is moral, not primarily just information or evidence. And so if you are proclaiming Christ to other people, to friends, to whoever it might be, co-workers, whoever, and you're proclaiming Him as Lord, as who He is, then you can expect that some people will absolutely stumble over this point. Even if you make a very compelling case, you've experienced that, I'm sure, Uh, you could make a very compelling case, you could use all the right scriptures to do it, and people will still trip and fall over this. The response of the Pharisees is the same response that many people continue to have today. But of course, this is good news that Jesus is God, that Jesus does possess full divine authority to forgive sins, because this is our our hope. For all who know their need, this is great reason for confidence that our sins are are in fact truly forgiven. Not because someone I say so, but because Christ is God. That He came and that Luke investigated these matters so as to strengthen the faith of Luke. John did the same things that by reading we might have assurance and come to faith in Christ and be assured of who He says He was. That these eyewitnesses left behind these accounts for us. We look to God's Word which is consistent with itself. And we have confidence that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that he proved it even while he walked the earth. And this is cause for us to glorify God, to, to praise him, even as some of these folks did in this story. So Jesus claimed to be God. That's one reason that people just despise him. They find that offensive and blasphemous and impossible. Secondly, Reasons why some people hate Jesus. His gospel, Jesus' gospel, offends their sense of decency. Jesus' gospel offends their sense of decency. So let's keep reading in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him, with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we have Levi here, Levi is also uh, known as Matthew. Jesus approaches his tax booth, which according to Mark was by the sea, probably the Sea of Galilee, which suggests that he taxed fishermen in particular, which is interesting. It's possible Peter, James, John, Andrew knew him and possibly paid taxes to him. We don't, we don't know that for sure. That's possible. It makes for an interesting thought about the dynamic of the Twelve, which we'll see more a bit next week. But uh, tax collectors which Levi was one. Uh, we've discussed this uh, a little bit back in uh, when, when John the Baptist had a run-in with some of them. Or not a run-in. They were approaching him, asking him what repentance looks like. 
But uh, they were despised, they were hated uh, by the Jews. They were essentially allowed to set the price of the tax. So Rome would say, collect this much, and the tax collectors were commissioned to go collect as much as they want, really. So they could, you know, they, they could set the, they would, they would and did set the price much higher, and then they would just live off of it. So they were, I mean, they were vultures, they were, uh, you know, they were parasites in many ways. They were hated throughout the Roman Empire. It wasn't just the Jews, although the, the Jews saw their, their fellow Jews collecting taxes for Rome as particularly wicked, sellouts, uh, helping the oppressors against their own people. So they lived in luxury, were hated. So they'd be rich, but they'd be not well-esteemed, perhaps like we might you know, think of drug dealers. Uh, back in chapter 3, as I mentioned, we saw John uh, interact with some of these as some of these tax collectors came and they said, uh, uh, they, they asked, you know, uh, what should we do? You know, what does repentance look like for us? And he said to collect no more than they were authorized to collect. So he's telling them to do that honorably and uprightly. We don't know if Levi was one of these people. We have no idea. It's possible, but we don't know for sure. Regardless, he accepts the invitation to follow Jesus. Again, as with Peter, this is a special invitation uh, to literally stop doing his current employment of tax collecting and and begin to follow Jesus around as a disciple. And he does this immediately, we're told. But he goes and he throws a dinner, a meal, a feast for Jesus, and his friends gather around and his fellow lowlifes with him. And Luke says, Luke says there, there were uh, tax collectors and others. Uh, and then he goes on, um, the Pharisees define this more uh, narrowly, then calls them sinners. They're eating with tax collectors and sinners. So these are the n- notorious people of society, the notorious sinners. The ones that the Pharisees would, those are bad people you stay away from. They're sinful people. It's, so this scene is offensive to them. Then they grumble to the disciples. They complain and ask, why do you eat with these people, these sinful people? So while, while they may, may not have articulated it like this, the Pharisees had an understanding of salvation by separation. If they kept distant from sinful people, then they'd remain pure and undefiled. So, so misunderstanding that it's with what is within a man that defiles him, uh, they, they think if they can keep enough of the bad stuff away, then they're just, they're good, they're pure, they're holy. And for them, this was in, an overreaction to Israel's past, their past sins. So if you think of the Old Testament, um, Israel was commanded to be separate from the nations around them and not to mingle with them lest they become like them and worship their gods. And we see in the Old Testament they failed miserably at that. Uh, they, they did not put up really any boundaries. They, they, and, and sure enough, they did exactly what God said they would do, and they just wound up taking on the gods of the pagan nations around them, and there was, they became worse than pagan nations, and they went into exile for it. And so now, you know, they've, they've, they've kind of learned from that, but they've swung over all the way over into the other ditch and overreacted to where now they, 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 they think if they just put up these walls, then that's really all they need. And then they're fine within. They don't need forgiveness from Christ. Uh, they, they, they don't even reach out to the sinners, the, the, the downtrodden within Israel anymore. They just leave them out. We stay away from them and, them and shun them. 
We must completely isolate ourselves from them. Jesus' response to these, these, these men is to say that those who are sick are the ones who need a physician. So, of course, he's, he's saying, of course I'm with sinners because this is who I came to call, sinners to repentance. Why are you with sinners? Because that's who I came to save. That's who Jesus came to save. He came for those who who have nothing to offer God and and know that, but understand their desperate need of forgiveness from Him. And those who do not feel their need of Him cannot and will not come to Him. But, even as we sang, the filthiest, the vilest sinner can be washed, can be made clean, can find forgiveness. And this is so offensive to so many people in their pride. Maybe to some of us. But some people just simply won't admit their guilt. They just won't admit that. For others, they've really, really worked hard at being good. You know, I've denied myself certain pleasures. I didn't go along with that crowd for all those years. I've given lots of money. I've given up almost every Sunday morning my whole life. I've worked so hard to be better than those other people. Nobody's coming to tell me that, that Jesus came for them and not me. I'm a good person. I'm the one that Jesus should love. I've not done those things. This is the classic older brother in the parable of the uh, prodigal son. Thank you. Right? I've been here the whole time. I've not done anything wrong. It's not that these people are not actually sinners, but they, act, they don't think they are. They don't see their need for God. I'm pure. I've done good. I'm a good person. Jesus came for sinners. If you don't deny yourself and your pride and acknowledge your need, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this awakens the fury in people, in prideful people, especially religious people, the outwardly pious, pious, those who appear to be good, who've really cultivated this persona. It is also simply offensive to many to suggest that the worst human beings could, could possibly find forgiveness, that murderers and rapists and really, whoever it is that you think are the worst of society might find forgiveness eternally by Christ, while somebody who's relatively clean-cut and pays his bills might not. That is incredibly offensive to a lot of people. And it displays our pride. And yet for those who, by God's grace, know their sinfulness, who've seen it because of God's gracious mercy on them, This is, this is our, this is, Jesus is our only hope. So we need to remember that going to the downcast, going to the sinners, even the worst of society, the ones with the worst stigma, it's right, it's good to go to them, to call them to repentance, as Jesus did here. 
Notice he even ate with them. He's eating with them and drinking with them. So it's not just, I mean, so the Bible has lots of uh, examples of, of preaching the gospel out in the marketplace with people, and that's good and right to do. Uh, but we also see Jesus here eating with people as he's calling them to repentance as well. So I think there's two, two ditches to try, that we, we need to try to avoid on this. One is this Pharisee, uh, Pharisaical uh, error, this sort of fundamentalist error, where we just we throw up walls and we just keep out everything that might be dirty and uh, uh, leave them be and we just retreat to our fortress and keep the world out and, 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 and the error there thinking that, you know, losing sight of the fact that uh, sin is within our own hearts. And even if we put up our own walls, we've still not escaped sin's reach because we are there. And so we still have sin. And, and, and this can also then forget about the Great Commission, that we are actually to go to these people. So one error is just complete retreat, and then to think we are just so holy for that. But then another error, maybe the other ditch, which is very common today as well, uh, is to just throw off restraint and completely blur the lines between the church and the world. Right? So the Bible does teach that there should be a difference between us as Christians and the world. We don't, we're not like them, we're not of them, and yet we're still, we still live in this world, we still interact in this world, we still rub shoulders with our neighbors, and we still work in this world, and so we, it's right for us to go to people in this world who are sinners and to call them to repentance. And so we don't want to completely blur the lines and not learn the lesson that's clear in the Old Testament and yet not swing all the way over to the Pharisee error. So let us befriend sinners for the sake of the gospel, calling them to Christ. Let us remember that it's for sinners Jesus came. Let us try to convince people of their sin. And if we're hated for this, whether it's by the people we're trying to reach or whether it's by... Uh, by others who are religiously proud, uh, then we remember that they hated Christ first. His gospel offends, for many, it offends their sense of decency, their, their sense of what's right. Good people who try really hard should be the ones who get to heaven, should be the ones that Jesus loves. And that's not how it works. Thirdly, why some hate Jesus Jesus defines true religion while rebuking man-made traditions. So read with me, uh, continue reading with me in chapter 5, verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. But he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a, gar- a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. 
And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, so after looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So in these last three stories, Jesus defines true religion and also slams the man-made religious traditions of the Pharisees. So the first account, this story about fasting, uh, this one might be maybe the trickiest to grasp, um, but here's what is going on there. So the Pharisees, they say that they and John's disciples, they fast, Uh, and pray regularly, but Jesus' disciples don't. So why is this, they want to know. So these fasts, uh, I think it's important to note, these are not Old Testament prescribed fasts, um, but these are additional ones. These are additional, ongoing, regular ones. And uh, they seem to be a sign of great piety and holiness, that you take things seriously. So uh, why why don't the disciples of Jesus do that? And Jesus' response is essentially showing them that he is the provision from heaven who will usher in the new covenant. So, whereas fasting implies uh, need and mourning even, uh, this is a time for celebration because Jesus is the fulfillment of promises. He is the answer to prayers. He is the answer to need. Answer is upon them. This is a time to celebrate, and they're missing it. They're in danger of missing out on it. This is not the time to mourn and and fast. It's the time to celebrate. The answer to their prayers is here. He's bringing in a new covenant, and he emphasizes its newness here. It's not simply a patch that you apply uh, to the old covenant and to extra-biblical traditions that the Pharisees have added to it without destroying the new covenant, without marring the gospel. The new cloth will be destroyed. This is what the stories illustrate. Uh, But at the end, in verse 39, he shows that these people who've tasted old wine, these people who like the way things are, they like their traditions, they're not going to desire new wine. That is the teaching that Jesus is bringing. They don't want a new covenant. They don't want him. They don't want what he's bringing. They want their own ways. Just like somebody, they drink old wine, tastes good to them. I don't want any new one. Why would we have new one? But Jesus is the one who decides what's true. He decides 
what practices are acceptable and when. Uh, but these people will not accept it. These Pharisees will not accept him. But he is the one who decides and, and determines and declares what true religion is. But they're going to want their traditions and what is old. And then in the, in the final two accounts, as we get into chapter 6, uh, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees quite clearly in their false traditions uh, while instructing on what true Sabbath keeping was. So the Old Testament teaching on the Sabbath was that th- they were not to do work on this day. It was to be a day of rest and renewal in which Israel would, would worship the Lord, and, and it's a day that pointed ahead to a greater day of rest that would one day come. But over time, traditions piled up about a thousand commands regulating what could and could not be done on this day. So certainly, uh, it would be a violation of the Sabbath command to, uh, to thresh grain in order to sell it. That would be working, right? That would be a violation of the Sabbath. But the Pharisees think that Jesus and his disciples uh, have violated the command here as they take some grain as they're in a field and, and thresh it in their hand and then eat it. They, they, they think that is working on the Sabbath. That's not working on the Sabbath. That's not what that meant. And they've completely uh, upended the purpose of the Sabbath. And so they've strained it completely. And so Jesus then tells the story of David and Ahimelech from uh, 1 Samuel 21. And the purpose of the story is to show that it's okay and even right for Old Testament ceremony to give way in order to show mercy and compassion on someone who's in genuine need. So the bread of the presence that David and his men ate, they show up, they're hungry, they're starving, they have no food. The only food there is the bread of the presence, which technically, by law, Old Testament law, uh, was only to be eaten by the priests. But Ahimelech gives it to the men, to David and his men, and they eat it to be nourished. And they're not rebuked for it. It's not a sin. In fact, Jesus indicates here that that was a fine thing for them to do. And it shows that uh, while there were laws about this bread and who was to eat it, when it comes to someone who's starving, it's okay to give them this bread. So it's, it's, it's okay for some, even that ceremonial law, clearly stated in Scripture, to be set aside in order to show mercy and compassion to hungry people who are starving. And so we know elsewhere, Jesus declares the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So they've completely upended this. It's to be a good thing and a helpful thing for man, and yet they've upended it with their oppressive regulations that were never intended and aren't part of Scripture. And then Jesus goes on to claim that he is, in fact, Lord of the Sabbath, which is another uh, major claim to his divinity. God is the one who established the Sabbath. So for Jesus to claim that he... The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, is a, is a significant claim to his divinity. He is God. The Sabbath is God's. He is Lord of it. He is God. And then in the final account, verses 6 to 11, the Pharisees are looking for a reason to accuse him. Notice verse 7. While he's teaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. So there's this uh, man there with a withered hand, and they're looking. Maybe he'll heal on the Sabbath and we've got him. 
because they had, again, this other tradition they had developed that it was wrong to seek any medical attention unless it was truly an emergency. It was wrong to seek medical attention on the Sabbath day. And so if Jesus heals the man, he'd be guilty of work and thus violating the Sabbath. He would have sinned. So they're, they're looking to trap him. And so Jesus asks this question, this pointed question, about whether it's right to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it, in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he just stares at everybody, and it's quiet. Nobody says anything, because there's nothing to say. There's no biblical defense for what they're doing, and they're not even pretending to. (laughs) They've got nothing. The answer is obvious about what it's right to do on the Sabbath. And so Jesus heals the man. He does it very publicly. This is not a secret thing. He's rebuking these these Pharisees and the scribes. He heals the man. And the Pharisees, were told, were filled with wrath. And they discussed what they might do to Jesus. Mark makes it clearer in Mark 3.6 and says uh, they, they discussed how they might destroy him. So truly, this is wicked. And truly, it's petty, right? Just straining at gnats. They know he's going to heal this man. And so they're like, we're going to trap him. That's their their brilliant plan. And rather than be amazed at the fact that this man got healed and joyful for his sake and and to bow to the one who did this and to realize who he, he was, who was in their midst, they claim he's violated the Sabbath, though their understanding of the Sabbath is not biblical. As R.C. Sproul says, the Sabbath day is a perfectly appropriate time to do acts of mercy, to minister to the physical as well as the spiritual needs of the people. This is a great day for this healing. And yet they think it's, they're, they're, they want to kill him over it. They're furious about it. He's trampled their tradition. Jesus defines true religion. He was is the long-awaited Messiah. He brought in a new covenant. And with that, the old covenant passed away. And those who truly worship God now are those who, who submit to Christ, who submit to the Messiah, the Son of Man, who worship God in spirit and in truth. Things changed with Christ. He was the fulfillment. He brought in something new, a new covenant. He determines as the Son of Man what is right and what is wrong, how it is we are to worship Him, what is and is not appropriate. And this claim is obviously radical, and it's offensive to many. And it's a claim that cannot stand alongside other religious claims or other traditions that contradict this. So, I mean, not all roads lead to God. The path is narrow, the Bible makes clear. It's through Jesus alone. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And such a claim certainly goes against the grain of our our modern sentiment. There's also a warning here, I think, for us too, uh, who believe, who attend church, who've maybe grown up in church, who come to church regularly, uh, to beware of making laws and demands on people that are not in the Bible, that are not scriptural. This is something we need to be careful of. Establishing new tradition that's not scriptural and that lays burden upon people. 
So tradition in and of itself is not bad. Many of us probably grew up in churches where tradition was like basically the enemy, uh, anything traditional. Well, tradition per se is not bad. Uh, Apostolic teaching itself is called by Paul tradition. It's good tradition. It's what we are, as the church, are to preserve. It's what we are to pass down to others and share with other people. So the question is not just is, you know, all tradition bad. It's, that's not the issue. What we must be careful about is not to create unbiblical traditions and then teach them as though they are biblical traditions, as though, and, and hold them up with equal authority, basically, to the Scriptures, as the Pharisees did, as I think the Roman Catholic Church is a very good and clear example of that as well, that tradition is there, you know, right there with Scripture, unashamedly. Rather, all things are to be tested in light of Scripture. <clears throat> Here's a, a great line from Calvin about this. If anything pleases us, we forthwith desire to make it a law that others may live according to our pleasure. This gets at the pride of it. Of, of, of this. If anything pleases us, we forthwith desire to make it a law that others may live according to our pleasure. This pleases me, and I'd be happy if you all do it my way, this way. And we want to then somehow get that in stone, get that in writing. And it really does get it at pride. And I think we're, we, you know, this is, this is instructive for all of us. Strictness and rules often, uh, you know, extra rules, often make somebody look holy and pious. They they look like they take things very seriously because they they have the strictest, you know, view of everything. And and so we, you know, it, it can have that effect. But if the Lord has not laid it down as a rule or a law or something in that he has commanded, then it's not noble to demand that of everybody else. So if somebody, if you wanted to fast three times a week, knock yourself out. If, if you, I mean, if you feel like you need to do that for some reason, I would want to talk to you. But, but if, if, if at the end of the day you just think, uh, it, it's helpful for me to fast three times a week and uh, it helps me focus on the Lord, and, and re- there could, okay, great, that's great. You could do that. But the moment you turn and you start demanding that of everybody else, as soon as you start making that V mark of, of Christian living and holiness, you've crossed the line and you've developed this tradition that's not in Scripture. And we can do that in all, with all kinds of things. All kinds of issues can enter in here and become new traditions. All kinds of convictions can do this. This is something we, we really do need to, to guard against and be careful about. We, we might have a real strict view. We, we, you, know, you might come to the conclusion that you should not watch any TV because whenever you, it's just a trap of wickedness for your soul. That you can't, you know, you don't have the self-control with it. You watch too much. You neglect other duties as a result. The things you watch are a direct assault of the spirit of God, on, the, on the Spirit of God within you. It's, it deters you from sanctification. And you're, the best thing for you to do is just have nothing to do with it and get it out of the house. That might be a good thing for you. It would probably be wise for for anybody even to do that. There could be wisdom there, but uh, there there could be somebody right next to you who can watch TV without getting sucked in to all of the ills that might come with it, who could do it in a way that doesn't... They're not watching filth on there. They're not watching it all the time. They could handle it in a way that 
uh, without you know, detracting from their pursuit of godliness. And for them, you know, if you just make a rule that, oh, the real godly people don't watch TV, well, I mean, you've made this tradition and we've imposed it on somebody else and it's, it's, not, uh, it's not valid. We are not to do that. But again, as the quote from Calvin, we, we tend to the things that work for us, that we like, that we want to do, we think we should do, we, we quickly want everyone else to do it the same. And, and, and so lots of things. As we wade through issues, we need to do it carefully, testing our traditions and our convictions, our understanding, by allowing Christ through his wor- and his word to correct and guide us, being willing to lay down absolute claims where we shouldn't make them. So we see this in other things. Again, it could be forms of entertainment. We could easily do this with homeschooling. I think that's fair. We, we, a lot of us do that here. Uh, but if we build that into a new law, that if you don't do this and... You know, it's, then, then we're in danger of adding to the scriptures. So let us hold our convictions. We, want to have, we can have good reasons why we do the things we do, biblical support for it. That's good, that's right. But we must always bring those under Christ's authority and under the authority of the scripture and test our convictions. And, and let us not then impose upon everybody else traditions and things that are not commanded expressly explicitly in Scripture, or that are not necessary inferences from Scripture. And, and also, if, if another comes along and tests your tradition, uh, let us allow for that. Let us allow for our, our traditions and our understandings to be tested, to be questioned even, to be pushed back on. Uh, let's not make it our first reaction to just, you know, fly off the handle and, and, uh, and be upset that someone would dare question you know, a, a tradition of mine. You know, we need to, to hold these things with humility and, and, and test them the Scripture. If, if, if indeed you have good scriptural reasons for what you do um, then, and what we do as a church, then they'll hold up as we open the Word and come to it. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord Jesus who defines what true religion is. And He rebukes man-made tradition. A hateful response to Jesus, whatever form it takes, is a manifestation of mankind's heart problem. And though though these scheming scribes and Pharisees would cry out for the crucifixion of Jesus down the road as we'll eventually get there, even this would be, in God's, God's good plan, the very means of our redemption. Jesus would take the sins of his people, and he would bear them himself, And he would pay the penalty of death that his people deserve. But of course, death would not be the last say. It is not the last say. He rose again from the grave on the third day. He is Lord. He is the Son of Man now. He will return on the clouds with the clouds of heaven and establish his reign forever. And if you're trusting in him, we are those who've been given much grace. Though we were once hostile to God, alienated from Him, hostile to Him in our mind and our disposition toward Him, His grace has helped us to see the light, to see the truth of who Christ is. So Jesus is truly worthy of our praise, worthy of our adoration and awe. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word again. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your kindness to us. God, I pray that we would be those who are thoroughly and and truly submitted to Scripture, uh, who are submitted in our convictions and our practices to you as a church and as individuals. God, I pray that we would 
maintain and hold fiercely to the tradition of apostolic teaching that you've passed down and that that would truly be preserved and that we wouldn't lose that, that we wouldn't lose the gospel as a church going forward through bringing in unbiblical man-made traditions. God, we pray that you'd preserve this church now and also throughout until the Lord would return, until Christ would return. That if that's many years since we are all gone from this earth, pray that this, there would still be a fellowship here, worshiping and praising Christ. God, we pray that you would um, help us to be those who, who love Christ, who love Jesus, and we pray that many others in this town would come to love Christ as well. Give us courage and strength even as we run into those who hate Christ. May we be not surprised and may we uh, willingly suffer along with Christ. And uh, we just pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts, that we would be confident, even as Luke would have us, that the Son of Man does have authority on earth to forgive sins. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.